turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Romans. And if you're with us this morning and you're without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. You wave to them and they'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage that we're studying today. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from your Creator, from God to you uh, today. We'll pick things up in verse 9, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, what then? Are we, speaking of the Jews, better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swifted, shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. And the cause of all of it, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the, His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be the, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where's boasting then? It is excluded. By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for this passage of Scripture. We love the Bible. We love to open it up. We think about the broad diversity of it, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the historical books. We think about the major and minor prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom that's in Proverbs, the Gospels, the epistles, the revelation, all of it speaking something very important to each of us in our search for you and also in our personal relationship with you. And we pray for these verses that we've read this morning that you would give life and illumination to them, and that each one of us would see what it is that you are trying to speak to each and every one of us in the privacy of our own heart, right from your throne, Lord, through your word. And we pray for that kind of an experience with you through your word this morning, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would provide it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I think it's helpful after a week or two of an absence from the book to be reminded of uh, the theme of the entire book of Romans, and the theme of the book is the gospel, uh, that is, God's plan of salvation for mankind. The book of Romans answers the uh, very challenging and profound question uh, of how can a holy God qualify an unholy person for the holiness of heaven, and here's the real trick, and remain holy in doing so. And that's what Romans uh, addresses. The theme of the first three chapters of Romans, as we've seen, can, I think, be very neatly uh, encapsulated in a single great word that you could make a banner over the three chapters, and that is the word condemnation. 
because in these three chapters, the Apostle Paul establishes the guilt of all of mankind before God. And because of that guilt, we deserving of His judgment, and as a result of that, in need of God's forgiveness and His salvation. And so he begins this letter uh, by establishing our guilt and our condemnation before God for the simple reason that if I do not understand my guilty condition, if I do not need, understand my need for salvation, then I will uh, not be alert to or pay any attention to uh, the time when God comes along and He provides that Savior and that salvation in human history as He has done through His uh, Son and provided us uh, a provision for the forgiveness of our sins in the gospel, in His uh, death and His burial and His resurrection. I think the best way to understand the, these opening three chapters, and really it's all the way through uh, chapter 5, but for our uh, consideration this morning, the best way uh, to view these opening three chapters of the book of Romans is to picture uh, the, a, a courtroom uh, scene, and, uh, because that's exactly what we uh, have before us. And it's a courtroom scene in which, uh, by the Holy Spirit, as I've said, the, whole, the Apostle Paul is attempting to establish the guilt of every human being before God. And, and thus uh, making us see our need for His forgiveness and His salvation. It's important to realize that the aim of the case that He lays for our guilt is not to convince God. God is thoroughly convinced of our guilt. The whole reason for laying out the watertight, airtight case that he lays out for our guilt in the first three chapters of the book of Romans is not so God will recognize us as sinners, but so that we will recognize ourselves to be a sinner and in need uh, of salvation. And uh, there is the uh, a sense in which we are in this courtroom that Paul has us in here, both the defendant in this courtroom and the jury uh, in this uh, scene. And he is at once uh, uh, thoroughly exposing us as sinners in need of a Savior, and, and so we are at once on uh, the defendant within the case, but we are also impaneled as a part of the jury. He is laying the case of our own guilt to ourselves in, in that room, and so that we will then judge ourselves uh, as sinners in need of a Savior, and then to find our, uh, and, and to recognize that we are uh, guilty of, of God's charge of, of being a sinner. I think that, again, as we, as we look at this section uh, of Romans, uh, the doctrine of it is very dense. And uh, you're aware of it if you've been here for any uh, time at all in our study of it, and I'm fully aware of it as well. And I think that um, sometimes there can be a look at it and think that, well, do I really need to know that much about Christianity? Do I need to know that much about my guilt or that much about the salvation that God has, has provided? And, and I would assert that we, we do need to. We need to know both of those subjects to whatever degree God chooses to reveal them to us in, in His Word. But it is very important to picture ourselves in the courtroom because that's what he's doing. I think most of us recognize that either from uh, Perry Mason watching it growing up. If you're a little bit older, if you watched the Flintstones, they had an episode about Perry Mason and they called him Perry Masonary. You might remember that in full Flintstones uh, thing. But most of us watch these kind of shows on television and, uh, or we've been in a courtroom ourselves. So we understand uh, what the dynamic is. One of the things you notice about a courtroom is they don't tell a lot of jokes. They don't tell a lot of stories. Uh, the logic what the, for the case that is being laid is always very, very tight. It's dominated by law. There's, there are no frivolous words that are spoken. It is uh, you have a prosecuting attorney who is trying to establish the guilt of, uh, of a defendant in no uncertain terms. You have a, defend, a, a, a public defender assigned to the defendant, and that man or woman is equally concise and deliberate about their words in order to attempt to establish the innocence of their, uh, of, uh, of the, uh, of their client. 
And so when we find ourselves in the book of Romans and every verse is worthy of a sermon and, and we can begin to get lost in the kind of the sheer depth of it, I think one of the th things that's in, that helps us uh, to stay alert and motivated in terms of learning what it is that God's putting in front of us in front of these chapters is to plant ourselves in that courtroom because we are the ones who are in that courtroom. And what, God is, what Paul is doing in the first three chapters is he is arguing for our guilt before God. And if you've ever been in a courtroom and you've sat behind that table where the defendant sits and this case is being laid out against you, you don't fall asleep during that. You realize that some number of months in jail or some number of months in prison uh, are, uh, are in, in play related to this. Your freedom is at stake uh, related to what happens within, uh, within that room. The stakes are infinitely higher related to what Paul is dealing with here because now we're talking about eternity, not a number of weeks or months or years or a lifetime behind bars, but a, an entire eternity in judgment. And so there is that recognition that this is not just theology. This is not just words that are being laid out by Paul. We are each of us in this room, and this case has been laid for our guilt before, uh, before God, and, and it is a, a very, very uh, powerful case. The case he's already made, as we've seen in recent weeks, for uh, our guilt, mankind's guilt before God. In chapter 1, Paul focused specifically on the guilt of the Gentile world before God. He talked about the out-and-out -out pagan, the one who refuses the witness of, uh, of creation all around them to the existence of a creator, uh, those who deliberately suppress this truth about the existence of God in order to protect the practice of uh, sin within their lives, those who even further uh, uh, in this category do not like to even retain a thought uh, about God in their minds, and, and further, they consider a thought concerning God in their minds to be unworthy of them. And this group of people, this population within the United States of America is not a population that is ebbing. This is a population that is growing uh, by the week. In the first 16 uh, verses of chapter 2, Paul then moves on to establish the guilt of the moral person before God, the morally educated uh, person, the person who lives a life that's at least slightly better than, uh, than the first group of pagans. And he establishes their guilt before God on the basis of conscience, that our conscience very consciences expose us as sinners in need of a Savior because none of us live up to the standard of our consciences, that God-given standard of right and wrong that is within each of us, that each of us are born with. And then in the latter part of chapter 2 and into the first eight verses of chapter 3, Paul establishes even the guilt of the Jew before God. And with the Jew, all religious people uh, within, uh, within the world. And he declared them that uh, the law of Moses, the thing that they boasted in, not only was it not something to boast in, but the very law that they were so proud of in making them different from the Gentiles, uh, that the very law of, of Moses itself uh, exposed and condemned them as sinners, again, it, it, it done so by the law of Moses. And Paul declared that the law of Moses was not given as a means by which people might try to keep it, and then on the basis of trying to keep it, establish some kind of righteousness before God or earn their way into heaven on the basis of good works, but rather it was given by God in order to expose us as sinners in need of a Savior, and then to prepare us to, to put into our minds uh, the uh, readiness, the eagerness for that Savior, that Messiah, to come into the world so that when He did come into the world in human history, we would recognize this is the means by which we are forgiven. This is the means by which we can have a relationship with God and ultimately find ourselves in heaven. And Jesus, of course, is that Savior and that Messiah. And now, in verse 9, having laid what is an absolutely airtight case for our guilt before God, Paul then renders the verdict uh, upon all of us, each of us within this room, 
on the basis of this evidence, and he declares all of mankind to stand guilty as sinners before God. You notice uh, the verdict there in verse 9. Both Jews and Gentiles are all under, under sin. Then notice in verses 10 through 18, Paul then rests his case concerning our guilt uh, by calling a final witness to the witness stand to establish our guilt before God on the basis of the law of Moses by calling the Holy Spirit into the witness stand. And he begins to quote now a series of verses from the Old Testament uh, scriptures on the subject of man's uh, universal guilt before God, Jew and Gentile. And he quotes from verse four, uh, Psalm uh, 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59, Psalm uh, 36. And, and you notice he makes mention in verse 11 of our understanding or of our mind. He speaks of our speech in verses 13 and 14. He references our feet or our actions in verse 15. He references our eyes in verse 18. And I think that maybe it would be profitable if a person wanted to just slow things down a little bit and look at each one of these uh, uh, verses individually and, uh, and dissect them and analyze them to, you know, to some uh, deep degree. But I don't think that's why uh, Paul's intention is in the flow of, of his argument here uh, at all. I don't think that's what he intends supremely. I think that he quotes these verses one after the other. Uh, so that with the intent that they would be a, like a great sledgehammer, uh, driving home the point that each and every one of us are sinners from head to toe. We are sinners from our mind to our feet. We are sinners inside and out. And he establishes the fact that everyone is a sinner, both Jew and Gentile alike, on, based upon the highest authority of all, the very Word of God, and shockingly to the Jews from the Law and the Prophets on the basis of the Old Testament, that this assessment of mankind is not something new in the New Testament or something that, new that came along, but it's well entrenched and well defined in the Old Testament. And here, Paul, as he lays out the guilt of mankind, one verse after another, kaboom, 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 kaboom. We can't defend ourselves against one of them, let alone uh, them coming and smiting us one after the other to get our attention related to our sinful condition. I think it is important to realize that in these verses, as he lays them out here between uh, verse 10 and verse 18, that Paul isn't saying here that every single person in this room or every single person in the world is as bad as we could be. Very few people in human history live a life as bad as we have the potential of living. But what he's declaring here is that every part of our being has been affected by and it has been corrupted by our fallenness and by our sin. It dominates us from head to toe, our minds, our wills, and our bodies. And again, having quoted this barrage of Old Testament Scriptures confirming our guilt before God, Paul makes the point that no one should ever think that they will one day be able to use, as the Jews thought they could, to use the Old Testament as a basis for being justified in the sight of God. Instead, he tells them and us in verse 20 that the law brings the knowledge of sin. The law does not bring the forgiveness of sin. He declares concerning our guilt in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And it's almost interesting to me as God would lay that verse out. He says, there is none righteous. And someone might be able to pull someone up in their mind or whoever they think, well, I think, you know, and, you know, we might have visions of uh, Opie or Aunt B or, uh, you know, whoever it might be as being a righteous kind of person. And, and God almost anticipates a protest on our part. Well, what about so-and-so? And what about, and he says, there are none righteous. And then to cut off any kind of a making a case for anyone being righteous, he says, 
No, not one. Not Abraham, not Enoch, not David, not Daniel, not the Apostle Paul, not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, not your mother, not your father, not the sweetest saint you've ever known, and certainly not you or me or anyone. And the case that Paul has laid in these three chapters concerning our guilt, it is so airtight that he declares in verse 19 that it stops every mouth. It renders each of us as defendants, if we are honest, in all of this. In the defendants in these courtroom, it renders us completely silent. We are incapable of bringing up any protest against this assessment. So put yourself back in that courtroom, and uh, hopefully you've never been in this place, but you can hypothetically do so. You put yourself in the courtroom, and you put yourself behind the desk where the defendant sits, and there you sit as the defendant in this case as it's being laid out. And initially, as a case might be be being made against you, you're guilty of sin. As you sit there, you know that to be true of yourself. And then uh, the the prosecuting attorney begins to lay a case uh, against you. And you might have a pad and a pen before you. And as he begins, he or she begins to lay the case, uh, you know, you have some kind of a protestation related to the first thing. I don't think in this and and, and here. But as the case continues to be built, At some point, you put the pad aside. At some point, you put the pen down. At some point, you stop even trying to rationalize within your mind or what you'll say or what you want your defense attorney to say. You realize this person has built a case against me that it is impossible to protest in any way. It renders me completely silent. It stops every mouth. And that's the picture of what Paul is describing here and what he is aiming at in this this early portion of of the book of Romans. He has established our guilt on the basis of creation and the Creator, on the basis of conscience, on the basis of the law of Moses. And as we would be honest with ourselves and not be fashioned by the culture, and we would sit behind that desk that sits in front of the defendant in that courtroom, we would recognize that there is nothing I can say on my own defense in the eyes of God. There's nothing to wait for but the pronouncement of my guilt and then the execution of the sentence. And this is why I pity the person who uh, intends upon one day standing before God, uh, not in the environment of of some courtroom in the United States of America, but in the environment of the white-hot holiness uh, of heaven. And then after a lifetime of sin, after a lifetime of having rejected God's provision for the forgiveness uh, of sin, of having uh, rejected Jesus, and now I intend to one day stand before God and lay a case for why God should allow me to go into heaven on the basis of my own good works and my own merit, and to stand before God with any intention of being successful in that environment is to be completely ignorant of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. If we are silenced today by the voice of the Holy Spirit through the first three chapters of the book of Romans concerning our guilt then, and we are, then will we, we will be even more silenced on that day. And with all of this, Paul then rests his case concerning the guilt of the entire world before God. And not only are we guilty before God, but we are deserving of his judgment as a result. But Paul hasn't written the first three chapters of the book of Romans uh, to just stop there. You notice the book doesn't stop at the end of verse 20. There we are. I wrote something, wanted you to know what a scoundrel you are. And you may have fooled half the people in the world, but you haven't fooled God. This is how he sees you, inside and out, up and down, and this is his assessment of you. Now let's close in prayer. He doesn't close the book. The book goes on. So he hasn't written all of this to just kind of 
leave us there. He doesn't lay this case establishing our our guilt uh, before God to now leave us without any hope for forgiveness or for salvation. He does all of this, the absolute darkness of these, these chapters, so to speak, in terms of how they condemn us. He does it in order to awaken us to God's provision for our need of forgiveness and salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. And at this point, we begin now the second major division of the book of Romans. We move now, leaving verse 20, we leave the section of Romans that sits under the banner of condemnation, and we move now into the next section of Romans that constitutes uh, the latter part of chapter 3 and through chapter 5, uh, that has a theme of justification or salvation. Now he talks about recognizing our need to be saved, how it is that we can be saved. You notice those first two uh, words in verse 21. They're important. He says, but uh, now. And so when he says, but now, uh, there is this, he's introducing now uh, the perfection of the salvation that God has provided to us in the light of the greatness of our need. And that word but, that first word of verse 21, uh, it it introduces this whole new section uh, uh, concerning salvation, and what it alone speaks to us is wonderful. Uh, Many, many years ago, uh, uh, Pastor Chuck Smith had an assistant pastor by the name of Pastor Romaine. He's a very uh, unique individual and a very straightforward man. You never had to guess what he was thinking, but he had a heart of gold. But I remember listening to Romaine uh, teach one time. I was a new Christian, and he was talking about people who had come in for counseling uh, into his office or wherever he did his counseling. And uh, as he would listen, he would always be very attentive to listen to whatever they're saying, and they're saying and talking and talking and laying out a kind of a context for whatever problem they're bringing uh, before him. And he said he would always listen and listen and listen, but he was listening for a particular word that they would finally speak, and it was the word but. So they would lay out the entire scenario of what's going on in their life, and then when they would use the word uh, but, uh, he would immediately perk up because usually it meant in in that kind of a setting, forget everything I've already said, this is what I really want to say. And and there's a lot of truth to that in life when you talk uh, with people. So when we use the word uh, but, It often means that now we're going to reveal something that is in kind of contradistinction to what's just been said. And that's what Paul does here with this word, uh, but. And as he uses it here in verse 21, we don't want to forget everything that he has said uh, before it, but it does mean that we realize that Paul's use of that word is intended to make us realize that as, as watertight a case as he has laid for our guilt and our condemnation, and that that has filled the entire stage. It has filled the entire courtroom for all three of these chapters. But it's intended to make us realize that something at this point, in verse 21, something far greater, something far more majestic, far even more powerful than our sin and our guilt, is now taking center stage before us in the book of Romans. And that something is the righteousness of God that becomes ours when we put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and salvation. This morning, I want to uh, explore this salvation by way of uh, four great words that Paul uses to describe our salvation here uh, in our passage in uh, verses uh, 21 uh, through uh, 28. And the first word that he uses to describe this salvation that God has provided to us is the word righteousness. He uses it twice, uh, once in verse 21 and again in verse 22. And so he repeatedly describes our salvation with the words, the righteousness of God. 
And to possess the righteousness of God means the state of being right before God. Not being right before one another, but being right on a level that is far higher than that, uh, the, the, the state of being right before God. What state or what condition is required to be right before God? Uh, perfection, uh, perfect righteousness. That's what's required in order to stand before God. And he describes it as something that becomes ours, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ. And we've noticed it before in a previous study, but it's worth looking at in a very surface kind of level by way of remembrance here this morning briefly in this particular context. When we put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we not only receive the forgiveness of our sins, that I would be satisfied with that. If that's all salvation was, I would take it. As a beggar, I would be happy as could be. But that's not all that happens in salvation. It doesn't uh, stop with forgiveness. And so, there is not only do we receive the forgiveness of sins, but then the perfect righteousness, the perfect rightness or right-onness of Jesus Christ is then put to our account that, only right, that the only righteousness that can qualify us for heaven is acceptable in heaven. God, when we trust in His Son, puts that very righteousness to our account. And again, the Bible speaks of this, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, for he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, thus had a perfect righteousness, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Later in Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul in uh, verse 5 is going to speak in the same vein, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Later in chapter 4, verse 22, and therefore it was accounted to him, speaking of Abraham, for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us, this righteousness, who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. When it talks, the Bible talks about Jesus' righteousness being imputed to us as Christians when we trust in him, that word imputed in the ancient word, world, that Greek word, it was an accounting uh, term. And, and it, meant, it means that Jesus' righteousness is put to my account when I trust in him. Here's the imagery, so to speak, within our minds. Uh, when I come and I, I put my faith, any Christian, but I'll use myself as an example, when I put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, uh, there is a tracking of sin in heaven. Uh, there is in the accounting firm of heaven, the big three uh, accounting firm up there, uh, there is the knowledge of every single sin I've ever committed. And when I trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, uh, the uh, Damien Kyle file, in terms of my sin, was called for and brought into the uh, uh, accounting office. And so they busted in every sin I've ever committed, every sin I've ever thought, uh, every rotten attitude within my heart, every wrong thing that I've ever spoken. That file was brought in in all of its giganticness into that room. And, and, and now that was removed and separated from me, my unrighteousness in terms of my identity. And now as a result of my faith in Christ, there is just a single folder in my file. And within that file, a single sheet of paper that says, righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And now for the rest of my life and your life, when God sees us, he does not see our past sin. It doesn't mar the relationship. It isn't baggage that's taken into the relationship. All he sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ put to our account. 
And, and the reason he does that is because when we become Christians, this amazing thing happens. We become a part of the body of Christ. As Paul speaks repeatedly in Ephesians chapter 1, how in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, we come in Christ Jesus and his righteousness is put to our account. And it is true of every Christian. Not just forgiveness, but now how God sees me. The second great word that Paul uses to describe our salvation is the word justified, as he uh, lists that in verse 24, uh, declaring that when we trust in Jesus for salvation, we are now justified. Again, this is a legal term, meaning declared to be righteous, and declared to be righteous by God and in the eyes of God. Uh, it, it, it has some kind of a, an overflow from, the, uh, from righteousness, but it, is, it adds something to our salvation, provides something to us as sinners that's unique to itself. And so, it, it's a legal term that means to be, be declared uh, righteous uh, by God in the eyes of God. It, it, again, an, a, a courtroom term that implies a leaving out of the account, a, a not imputing. In other words, it is to enter into a courtroom knowing that I am fully guilty of every charge against me in that courtroom. And when I walk in that courtroom, my greatest hope is that somehow they will find a way uh, to forgive me. Justification goes beyond that. With justification, again, there's not only forgiveness, but our record is cleansed. Uh, where uh, you leave the courtroom where there is uh, no record of our wrongdoing at all. It is as if our past sin never existed. I remember when I was a, a, a teenager, uh, we had a juvenile hall in town, and everybody called it juvie. I understand that uh, that's still the term uh, for today, but nobody wanted to end up in juvie. Uh, but all of us knew a person or two or however many that ended up in juvie, and we knew that if you got caught for committing a, a crime of, of some kind under the age of 18 and you went in, into juvie, that it, 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 at least it was better than having committed the crime when, uh, when you were an adult. Because to commit a crime in your youth would mean that uh, it, you would bear the weight of, of the, the sin that you had committed, the crime that you had committed. But then at the age 18, your case would then be sealed. You'd go into adult life with kind of a fresh start. That would never, you wouldn't have to put that on any of your employment applications or anything at 18, uh, the, the, uh, the file and the record. Uh, was, uh, was, was sealed. But this is something even uh, beyond that. It is more than sealed. We leave the courtroom without any record of wrongdoing. How wonderful would it be to go into court completely guilty and then to leave, and the judge informs us of the fact that uh, not only are we forgiven of what we've done, not only has our, uh, our, our uh, case been, been sealed, but now it's just been eradicated from the records at all. In, in the legal system, it's as, if, uh, it's as if I had never committed a crime, as if I had never sinned. And how much more when uh, you think about the excitement we would feel to experience that in a human courtroom, how much more when that kind of an offer is made to a sinner? Where I, here I've been a, a lifelong sinner, and yet because of my faith in Jesus Christ, I now have no record of wrongdoing against me. And this word justified speaks to the fact that we're not only forgiven by God, wonderful in its own right. Again, I would accept that in its own right. But additionally, what justification is, is communicating is that God then chooses in some way that only He can accomplish to then forget those sins, 
to act as if they had never existed, to now begin a relationship with us and to continue a relationship with us where we are not hindered in any way by what we once were. He never brings our sin up. He will never throw it in our face. He will never use it as a weapon against us. God declared through the prophet Isaiah, he said, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. This is justification. The writer of the book of Hebrews wrote of God in this regard, Hebrews chapter 8, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And here is a forgiveness that is so complete that the only way to make us realize as human beings how complete it is is to say that God doesn't remember it. Uh, praise the Lord for that. Justification and the idea that God does not hold our sin against us. That is, that once a sin has been forgiven, is never brought before us again. It is, uh, the matter is settled eternally. Uh, sometimes, and only God operates this way <laughs> in all of the universe and all of the world, sometimes in life a person will uh, forgive another person and they'll uh, do what our culture calls burying the hatchet. Uh, but they don't quite bury the hatchet, do they? They bury the head of the hatchet, but they keep the handle of the hatchet uh, above ground just in case the person does that same thing again or some other numbskull kind of thing. They know right where to find the hatchet and pull it out of the ground and wave it in front of our, uh, our face, uh, you know, once again. God never does that. He never does that. Think about it. Has he ever done that in your relationship? He never does that. No wonder why Paul, when he describes the gospel in chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation, that God would find a way to provide a forgiveness that is that complete and that perfect of a match to me. My need is a sinner. Sometimes, uh, you know, there's the old story of uh, the husband who said to his wife during an argument as they were uh, arguing over something, and he said to his wife, you know, every time we argue, uh, you get historical. And uh, she said, don't you mean hysterical? He said, no, I mean historical. Uh, you bring up the past every single time. And it's true of a lot of people. But wonderful to realize in our own personal relationship with God that he has never done it, and he will never do it. That's the degree of forgiveness that is found in Christ. The third great word that he, and I think before we go to that, the easiest way to, to remember what the word justified means is to just simply sound it out. It means that God sees me just as if I'd never sinned. You can hardly improve upon that definition. The third great word that Paul uses to describe this salvation is the word redemption in verse 24. And the word redeemed means to be released upon the payment of a ransom. You may or may not be aware of the fact that in the Roman Empire, um, slavery was legal. And in fact, there were uh, conservatively six million slaves that were owned by other human beings uh, during the Roman Empire. So redemption isn't something that we, you know, we think about, except we're talking about pop bottles or something like that, or uh, plastic bottles. It's not something that we see in the way that uh, people would have in the early church or those reading this particular uh, letter at this time. In all of these different cities that you had within the Roman Empire, you would have these uh, men and women brought from all over the Roman Empire, and they would be brought into these places and be sold and uh, to whoever would have the money to redeem them uh, or uh, to, to buy them. And so they'd be brought into the center of town. There would be this raised platform. They would be marched one at a time uh, up in front uh, of, of everyone. This large crowd of, of men seeking to purchase slaves would be there. The auction would begin, and the slaves would be sold uh, one after another to those who possessed the, uh, the, the required price to, to do so. And as they would be purchased by 
sold by the one uh, master and then sold to the other. Uh, ownership would, uh, of the slave would pass from one owner to another. And what, uh, and what Paul is describing here in terms of our salvation is this is precisely what God has done for us in Christ. We were each of us once slaves to sin, slaves to our own selfishness, slaves to our flesh, slaves to the world, and slaves uh, to the devil. We had no hope in and of yourself, and I hope if you've been a Christian a long time, you haven't lost uh, that sense of despair that you felt before you became a Christian, to look at the bondage to the sin and selfishness that was a part of your life, and the longing of realizing, I cannot free myself. I cannot free myself from the bondage that I have sold myself into, and is there someone who can not only forgive me, but deliver me from this bondage, and then to put our faith in Christ and, and to uh, realize as we, we were at one time, point in time, no hope of ever being set free from our sin in, in our own resources, our own uh, human uh, effort without the, the resources to, to free ourselves. And then God steps in at that auction. And he steps up in that auction block, and the devil is selling you from one owner to the next owner. We're doing the sin shuffle that he takes us through, and we think that here we've been in bondage to this sin, and that the most that we can hope for in terms of freedom related to sin is to do the sin shuffle and just get engaged in another sin that causes the bondage to this sin uh, to somehow diminish within our our eyes. We have no hope that we could be freed from the entire scene. And then God comes into human history in the person of His Son, into that very scene that every single human being finds himself in the middle of. And He steps up in that scene, in that auction, and He paid the price for our freedom in the giving of His Son. And He secured our freedom, our liberation. And a slave could be freed with the payment of money in that ancient world as Paul uses the imagery here to describe what God has done for us. A slave could be freed by uh, the paying of some uh, amount of money, but no amount of money, not all of the money in the world that exists today. In the stock market, in every country that's uh, in existence in the world, no amount of money, not all of the money in the world can set a single sinner free. It can't do it. Not one human being can be set free in this way. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can set a sinner free. And that is a part of our salvation not merely forgiveness, but to be freed not merely from the consequences of our sin, but from the very power of our sin. And that's why Jesus declared concerning all of this, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And I remember my life very well before coming to Christ and the bondage to the sin that was a part uh, of my life, and I remember just as well the liberation that he brought into my life in an instant in time upon becoming indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We close with the fourth great word that Paul uses to describe the salvation in verse 25, and it's the word propitiation. And the word propitiation is, carries the idea of a satisfying payment. Uh, the word was used in the ancient times to refer to the act of appeasing another person's anger uh, concerning something we'd done wrong to them by the offering of a gift or a sacrifice. And as it relates to Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, it is only His sacrifice on that cross that makes the full and satisfying payment that is required for the forgiveness of our sins. It is only that sacrifice, Paul is saying, that makes it consistent for God to pardon us. It is only His sacrifice that satisfies God the Father, that satisfies the righteous requirements of heaven. It is only Jesus' sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God toward our sin.
and the wrath of God toward man's sin is real. He could not be a holy God or a righteous God if he did not have a righteous anger toward our uh, sin. I don't know about you, but my parents, when I was growing up, they didn't know half of what I did wrong. And uh, was it kept a secret from them? And yet they, only knowing half of the story, were pretty consistently upset with me. If they knew the whole story, I don't know if I'd have been able to let back into the house half of the time. Think about God. And these are just fallen parents. These are just sinners. Think about God who has witnessed every sin I've ever committed, every time I've torn down anyone in the body of Christ, every bit of slander that's come out of my mouth, every action that I've ever done, every wrong attitude of my heart, every, thi- every single sin. Not only does, is he aware of every single one of them, but I have committed them in his living room. I've committed them in front of him, in, in his creation, in his world, his universe. And I have no problem accepting the fact that the sins that I have committed before God in his sight in rebellion to his righteousness and, and his holiness, that it would upset him and that something must happen in human history to appease his wrath, a righteous wrath, concerning how I have conducted myself as his creation uh, within his creation. This is not something that is hard for me to grasp, but it is hard for some people. Uh, they, They just have this awful time trying to accept the fact that God could be upset with them at all. Let me be with you for 24 hours, and I'll explain to you why God could be upset with the best of you or the best of any of us. And it's just the dumbing down of sin that allows a person to, to even think of that. When a person stops and thinks that he was present in all of it, he saw all of it, he heard all of it, he's absolutely holy in a way that our parents will never be, in a way that the world is not and will never be. And I committed those sins not against everyone else that I thought that I was committing the sins against, but I was committing them supremely against him and against his righteousness and against his heart. It doesn't seem inconceivable to me that there would be wrath involved in all of this. But the moment that we trust in Jesus for salvation, the Bible says we are saved from that wrath. And it is God himself who desires for that to happen. We'll see later in Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than now having been justified by his blood, we have been saved from wrath through him. I, uh, uh, the, uh, and, uh, and how wonderful it is that God has found a way. In the imagery of the Old Testament, in the Psalms, as he talks about how he's found a way for mercy and righteousness, these two things, to remain righteous and and still show mercy, as he talks about mercy and righteousness uh, kissing in his Son. And this God who out of a motive of love has provided a way of salvation that allows him to remain just and still justify sinners like me. And then to realize that the only way that it could happen is at an indescribable cost to himself and to his son, as, as Paul uh, describes it there in, in verse 26, and as we've addressed in a previous study, that allows him to be just and the justifier of the one who has his faith in Jesus. And we see here uh, uh, this as awesome as, uh, as is Paul's case for our guilt in chapters 1 through 3. Even more awesome is his description of the salvation that he has provided in his Son. As, as much as those verses that he quoted in verse, verses 10 through 14, as every one of them pounded us, one after the other, pounded us and established our guilt and left us speechless before their assessment and their accusation against us. Just when we think there's no hope for us in the eyes of God, 
Paul comes and he brings onto the stage of human history at this moment something that's even stronger than our guilt, more powerful than our guilt. And he describes it here as he introduces words like righteousness and justified and redemption and propitiation. The power of these realities from God, not just theological terms, but things that are ours as Christians to come up against uh, the greatness of our need and the the accusation uh, of our sin. One commentator uh, put it this way, and I think it's very important. He said, commentators are unanimous in their ascriptions of the importance of the 11 verses that we're about to study. He's talking about verse 21 uh, through, uh, through 31. He said, Cranfield, another commentator, calls this uh, pericope the center and heart of the whole of the book of Romans. He declared, Robert Mounts, also a commentator, uh, elevates uh, the significance of this passage that we're reading one level higher, saying it is generally acknowledged to be the most theologically important segment of the entire New Testament. But this commentator went on to say, but it is Leon Morris, another commentator, who perhaps most accurately describes its significance, suggesting that it may be possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. And the fact of the matter is, is that it is true because it addresses the greatest need of mankind, the darkness of our need, and then the majesty of God's provision for that need in repairing the breach, the gap, the great gulf and chasm that was brought into existence between us and God through our sin and that sin in the Garden of Eden. And Paul here counters the gravity of our sin and our condemnation before God with this immense spiritual barrage Righteousness, justified, redemption, propitiation. It's a marvel, really. And when you would look at Romans chapters 1 through 3 and think that there's no match for it, there's nothing that can be brought against it and prevail, the good news uh, is that uh, the forgiveness that's found in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus comes up against that, that dire need that we have and blows it to smithereens. The greatness of our sin laid out in those chapters. And this gospel comes on the scene in human history and blows the whole thing up for the person who will put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. The grace of the gospel. Again, no wonder Paul, as he even began to put his pen to begin this particular letter, said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And we read about the power of it in these terms, and they're not just theological terms to us, they are what we experience every day as Christians. You say hallelujah to all of it. The Roman poet Horace, he lived in first century B.C., he was very frustrated in his day at the writers of the tragedies of his day. Uh, we would call them the screenplays of, uh, of uh, the writers of screenplays in, in, in our day. And the thing that frustrated him is he would watch play after play after play and so forth, put, uh, put forth whether in the form of a, of a book or an actual uh, drama presentation. What frustrated him was their frequent introduction of some God into the script in order to sort out any and every complication developed in the course of the plot. And one day, frustrated at seeing all of this, he counseled those that wrote these things. He said, do not bring a God onto the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a God to solve it. And Horace would have no problem at all with uh, Paul here as, as he, this watertight case that Paul has laid for our guilt and our condemnation as a result of 
of our own sin. He would not have any problem with Paul in writing the book of Romans when then at this point in the writing to bring forth the only solution to our problem and now to introduce God into human history and in, not into a play but into reality where the stakes are so high. And how is this salvation received? It's received through a simple faith or trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. If you've never done that, and I don't have time to develop it, I'll do it next time, but if you read through these verses over and over again, by faith, by faith, by faith, by believing through faith in Jesus Christ, it's all of this received uh, by faith. It can't be earned from God. It has to be received as a gift from God. Sometimes people look, and, and, and when we talk about faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, it is, it is, it is trusting in Him for that forgiveness. It isn't just trusting in His teaching. It isn't trusting in His miracles. It's trusting in Him. If you've ever, if you've ever had a surgery... And uh, before they put you under, when they take you uh, into to that room, and uh, you have, b before you ever get into that place in that room, uh, you have met with some kind of a surgeon who has assessed you of the greatness of your need for this surgery, and then, uh, and then told you of their skill and their ability to now meet that need through this surgery. And before they put you under, by the time you're lying on that table and, get in, and, and about to be put under, you have at that moment in time chosen to trust in that surgeon to fix uh, your uh, problem and to do so, and, and then you rest in his or her ability to do so. And it is the same thing that we do with Jesus, where we look at him this morning and, I see, and say, I see that you are uniquely qualified uh, to uh, provide me with the forgiveness of sins. And so now I trust in you to do so, and I rest in your ability to do so. And when we do that, he steps up and then does that concerning this need within our life. The single greatest thing that any human can being can do to honor God is to put our trust in the Son that He sent in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. It can't be done on the basis of works. And if you've never done that, this morning is the day to do that. And there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service who'd love to pray with you to begin this relationship with God that is so multifaceted to receive not only forgiveness but more than forgiveness. Everything that you need is a fallen sinner and a fallen human being to overwhelm all of it with himself. And it's all there for the asking and the receiving. And I urge you to come forth and, and uh, ask your questions and allow them to speak to you and begin the relationship with God that you've been created for uh, this morning. I think that sometimes in, is you, we're in the book of Romans here, and, and one of the reasons I don't mind the depth of, uh, certainly of this early part of the book of Romans, though I, I am somewhat self-conscious of it, because I've mentioned it two or three times, um, but, but there is this prevailing idea among non-Christians, but even a prevailing idea among uh, Christians concerning uh, salvation, and that just where there's the, the thought concerning uh, Christianity is it's just this kind of religious uh, something. And, uh, and uh, somehow in some abstract way, God considers us to be sinners. And, and then in some equally abstract way, he's provided us with the forgiveness of sins. And, and somehow there's this hocus pocus thing, the, this incantation that you make in terms of trusting in Jesus. And I would say there's a fair number of people that don't understand salvation uh, any deeper than that in terms of the greatness of our need and the provision of the need that God has, ha, has made uh, for that need. And the, book of, and the book of Romans provides that to us without which we will never appreciate what God has done for us in the way that, that we uh, can and ought to and to give him the worship and the praise uh, that he deserves. God wants us to understand uh, these things in a, in a thorough way within, within our lives. These things are going to be challenged mightily in our lives 
as Christians and the culture that we're living in and the foundation that might have taken other Christians through uh, unbelief and so forth in, in, in the past of, of American history when there was a, a stronger adherence to the Judeo-Christian ethic and so forth, the biblical foundation of the culture, gone, 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 gone. The spiritual foundation that got Christians through uh, generations before us, that foundation is not going to work in the hour in which God has called called us to know our Bibles, to know our salvation, to know how to speak to people, to know how to give an answer from the Scriptures for why we believe what we believe. And it isn't just something, somehow we're sinners and, and God just has done something to provide us with forgiveness and just this little, I trust in Jesus and then it all works, that people will laugh at us. Uh, if we try to communicate something like that to them. So the importance of all of this, not only for our own lives, but for all that, uh, that we desire to become Christians as well. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we stand in awe of the case that your Holy Spirit has laid concerning our guilt before you. And I... <laughs> I'm more than silenced by it. I picture myself in that courtroom, in that seat of the defendant, and the mere thought of trying to defend myself before you and the case that you've laid against me, and I would laugh at myself for trying. And thank you for not leaving us in that place. And the condemnation of blow after blow after blow of these verses in, from the Psalms and from uh, the prophets that pounded against us, establishing our guilt, but bringing a whole new power and a whole new dynamic into our lives and into human history through Jesus Christ, encapsulated in justification and propitiation and just, uh, uh, justification and redemption and righteousness, Lord. And we thank you that these are more than just words in the book of Romans, but they are our portion and we thank you for that. Thank you for your forgiveness, but thank you for everything else that is found in our salvation and in our Savior. And we give you thanks from the bottom of our heart in this place today for him. And we pray to you, Lord, in his name. In Jesus' name, amen. Mike, would you